Good morning, everybody. Uh, I am Vinny Nicoletti. I lead the worship system at 6-8, as well as sit on our pastoral council uh, starting today and for the next uh, two weeks until we regather on September 13th. Uh, We'd like to include a short but purposeful uh, moment of prayer for our regathering. You know, the the pandemic has challenged us in ways that we've never imagined. Uh, One of the biggest challenges has been its uncertainty. You know, there's two questions on everyone's mind right now. When will this pandemic end and how will it end? Well, I don't think any of us can say with any degree of certainty uh, either of those things, but uh, I know without a shadow of a doubt that it will end with God keeping every promise in his word to us. You know, today I'd like us to pray and ask God to strengthen our faith as we stand on his promises. You know, if we don't know all that scripture promises, we don't know God as big as he really is. Uh, But the more we learn about his promises and we talk with him about them, you know, the stronger our faith grows. In Isaiah, he promises us his strength. Uh, In the Psalms, he promises us his direction. Uh, In the book of James, he promises us his wisdom. Uh, He promises his presence in times of trouble in the Psalms. He promises emotional rest in Matthew. He promises inner peace uh, in Philippians. And he promises that we all have a home waiting for us with him in John. Uh, So with those in mind, would you join me in prayer uh, as uh, as we go to the Lord? Father, we thank you that uh, you are who you say you are and that you do what you say you do. Uh, You are faithful, you're steadfast, you're loving, you're strong, uh, and you're wise. Uh, You're generous. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you give us your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. You promise to give us wisdom if we ask for it, and you promise your presence through our trouble. Lord, we come to you now standing on these promises in faith. Lord, we know that you can be trusted to do all you say you will do because you're holy and you're righteous and because you love us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're excited to see you guys again, uh, and we also understand that, you know, some folks won't feel comfortable right away. Uh, we hope to see you soon, but uh, until then, uh, you know, we will um, uh, continue to stream online and, and make sermons available on YouTube. And then for the, those of you that will be joining us, uh, we are really excited to see you, and we would just ask that uh, you please review uh, the safety guidelines that were sent out. Uh, earlier in regards to um, social distancing and mask wearing at the facility. Uh, And you can find those in your inbox. If you don't have them, uh, you can reach back out to uh, info at 6-8, and we'll send them back out to you. Uh, Other than that, uh, that's it for me. We're going to turn it over to Jason. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. How are you? I'm glad to see you on here. And I know some people uh, have taken to sleeping in late and watching it later, and that's that's all right. I think Jesus still loves them. But <laughs> anyway, uh, glad to be with you. Uh, if you have not been getting all the church emails and informational emails, you, you need to email admin at 68.org and get placed in our system. And as Vinny said, we're 
coming back together September 13th, 9.30 a.m., but we will still be live streaming so that uh, uh, people at home can still connect if uh, you're, un- you're, you're uncomfortable getting together. Uh, and also every Sunday leading up to that, uh, now through Labor Day, we're going to be having like a lunch fellowship at one of two houses. Uh, and today it's going to be at my house. It was last week. It's going to be t- again. I'm going away next week. So it's going to be at the Christie's next week. But um, so today from 1130 to about two, bring your own lunch, you know, uh, you know, rain or shine. Uh, there's a grill available. We have all the paper products you need. Uh, throw a lawn chair or something in your car in case you need it. You probably won't. Um, and then um, you can just co- come to my house. And uh, it's at 214 Lippincott Avenue in Ardmore. It's a one-block street. It's a little one, one street between County Line and uh, Spring Avenues, and it's one block over parallel to Cricket. So, 214 Lippincott Avenue in Ardmore. We hope to see you. Anyway, a few other housekeeping things just to get this out of the way. Uh, uh, If you have not changed from Simple Give to Breeze, I know you hear this every week, but we still have some people that are stragglers uh, in making this transition. Go uh, go online to the giving page and and, uh, look up the directions to cancel out that Simple Give and move it over to Breeze, which is now our new uh, giving portal. There's also directions on there for text to give. I just did it about two minutes ago. I texted 20, just the, the numbers 20. And, um, that put $20 in our general, general budget. Um, I was paying for a meal that I had for, that we had for a meeting. And, um, uh, we also have Venmo. You can, uh, and you can also send a check to the church. So all those directions are on the giving page there. I also want to highlight that, uh, you know, we know that the bomb or not bomb, but the explosion went off in Beirut and we have two partner organizations on the ground there working for the relief and the rebuilding and, you know, helping, um, you know, anybody in need, uh, and also rebuilding some of the churches that we partner with there and stuff like that. And, um, you can go to either one of their websites to, or both to give, and they would, uh, they would certainly be appreciative of that. Uh, the money does go a long way. The first is ananiashouse.org, ananiashouse.org. I know they're sending over a lot of meals and things like that. And the second one is horizonsinternational.org. Both are great organizations that I fully support and, and, uh, you can, you can, you know, go on their website and they have like little giving links there to, um, to let you know, I gotta, I want to put something here on my, there we go. Now, um, I want to begin today just by reading the apostles creed. It's not really linked to our sermon in a sense, but I, 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 you know, somebody has been challenging me to read this and, you know, in the beginning of our services. And I would really like to do that because I think it's really solid. One of the things that people I think get confused about with the Apostles' Creed is the word Catholic in it. You know, like, you know, oh gosh, are we like, you know, talking about the Catholic Church? No. When it, when it says Catholic, it means the all-encompassing church of believers, right? So I just want to point that out before I, I say that. But, but just close your eyes and prayerfully listen to these words. These are our solid beliefs. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Isn't that a great, solid, uh, just a reminder of where we stand with the Lord and what we believe in? Um, that's very important for our unity as we've been talking about that. You know, uh, if you want, I, I won't read it yet, but when if you want to earmark Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to be today, uh, Luke chapter 10. But uh Ear that, earmark that in your Bible, and then later on you can you can read along with me. But today's our last sermon in this series in which we've been making statements addressing our position in this current social climate, all the stuff that's going on out there. And these are important statements. There's been seven statements, but eight sermons because I I stretched one out. Um, but let's begin with our last statement today. It says this. We acknowledge in our country unjust laws and personal prejudice far after slavery's abolition systematically oppressed many non-white Americans, particularly based upon black or brown skin color. And we also acknowledge with great sadness that the majority church has been viewed as complicit or silent in the face of this racial injustice. Furthermore, we deny that the long-term effects of these injustices have been fully healed in our present day. Therefore, obeying the command to love our neighbors, we resolve to play an ongoing role in promoting racial healing, justice, mercy, and compassion as defined by God in Scripture. We do, we do so as Christians and as the church, never ceding to secular agendas or cultural categories. This role does not displace our Lord's great commission, uh, commission of making disciples of all nations, which forever remains of first importance. And that was a good last statement, I think. You know, and I thought, in light of that, it would be good to look at an example today of someone in Scripture who could have responded out of racial tension and hatred. They could have. But instead, they chose biblical justice and mercy and love, right? A a person who embodies 1 John 3.17, which says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person, right? Which says to us that the heart of God, you know, bleeds out of this this practical care of anybody in need, even if that person might consider you their enemy, right? You know, I hate to say that I consider anybody else my enemy, but they may consider me an enemy, right? You know, this, so this example is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, if you want to read along with me, and I'm only going to start, and then I'm going to continue later on finishing the story. But it's the story, the great story of the Good Samaritan, right? And it starts in verse 25, and it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Well, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you'll live. 
but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's a good question, right? <laughs> Who's my neighbor? Well, let's stop there. Let's stop right there and, and interrupt the story to consider the scene, right? Last week, Jesus called these guys hypocrites, right? <laughs> Due to their observance of all these little outward material religious acts, but absolutely disregarding the inward weightier immaterial things of justice and mercy and faithfulness and things like that. And here he stands with another one of these guys right before him. Maybe he's one of the same guys. I don't know. But let's notice a few things. Number one, this is not a sincere inquiry, right? It says it right there. It's a test. It's a prideful attempt on this leader's part to trap Jesus in an argument. This happens quite often, doesn't it? And the question is directed towards eternal life or salvation, but with a selfish twist to it, right? He's, he's asking how to protect himself with no regard, real regard for his neighbor at all. He's asking, what do I have to do to get what I want? You know, what I think is best for me. Secondly, Jesus rightly directs him to the law, the word of God, the standards of social life coming from the heart of God, right? And number three, the man responds correctly. He he does. He says the right things, which tells us that you can have all the right answers. And we've, we've talked about this before with a right, but without a right heart, you know, which we saw a lot, uh, last week with the other religious leaders, it, it doesn't really make a difference. You can have all the right answers without the right heart, and that's really not what we're driving towards in our lives, is it? Fourthly, Jesus answers in two parts, doesn't he? Firstly, it concerns our vertical connection to God, encompassing every part of humanity, right? It, 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 it encompasses our heart, which, by the way, this not our physical heart, but, but the seat of our emotions and our passions and things like that, our affinities, stuff like that, our soul, which is really our core being, uh, our strength, which is, you know, you could, you could say is our physical life and our mind, you know, that, in other words, our thinking that is governed by God's word leading to correct or good or right action, uh, loving actions and just actions and merc- merciful actions. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2 and, and verses like that. But then it, that, that then extends horizontally to all the relationships with other people out there. And this leader, (laughs) you know, traps himself since true religion has to be seen and how we treat others in horizontal human relationships, which reflect this vertical relationship to God. We're not here just to get what we want for ourselves. That's not what we are about as Christians, right? And then fifthly, uh, the last point I want to make in, in, in this scenario here is that the difficult question comes, you know, who's my neighbor? That's a good question, you know, but it's an effort to justify himself and dodge what God really expects of him, right? This man embodied a life which built, you know, walls against others, not like himself. You know, he sought to stay separate from others that were not from his ethnic group or not from his religious group and and so on and so forth. 
But God's call, as we've learned, ad nauseum, you know, I'm preaching this stuff pretty hard, right? Ad nauseum, we've, we've learned that God's call all has always been to consider all of humanity with intrinsic value instilled by God, no matter the difference between, differences between us, we love all peoples, seeking to be the light of Christ to everybody that comes across our path, right? Yet instead of using the law of God as a guide to bring uh, others into his light, these leaders seem to use it to build walls of separation between people. And that was a sad thing. So Jesus replies to him with a story. He asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus replies uh, this way. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead, right? And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So he he took a beeline around the guy, right? So, too, a Levite, when he came to, to, to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side again, right? But a Samaritan, right? Now, Realize, Jews considered Samaritan to be half-breed dogs. They didn't want to have anything to do with him, right? So a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he pouring pouring oil and wine on oil oil and wine. Excuse me, getting tongue tied. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Imagine putting somebody in your own car, right? All bloody and beaten up brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have or you may have. Now, I want to say really clearly from the very uh, outset of this is that opportunity Opportunity for ministry, opportunity for mercy, opportunity for justice, opportunity for love, takes place at the intersection of chance and need. Opportunity takes place at the intersection of chance and need, right? So we see a need, we happen upon it, and that's where our opportunity is as believers. So you imagine two roads crossing, one chance, one need, making for common ground between people, right? Common ground. And then if those two roads had secondary labels of church and world, right, We'd say that this is where we cross, where we have common ground, where we serve others in that moment with the hope that they might turn that corner to follow Christ in their life. Although they may not, and that's up to them. Or maybe it's up to God. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't profess to be an expert in that area, right? (laughs) It's not my doing. But anyway, in this story of the Good Samaritan, the behavior of these two religious leaders, these two Jewish religious leaders, is contrasted with the image of the Samaritan or the the actions of the Samaritan. Now, you got to understand, Jerusalem was 3,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho was 1,000 feet below sea level, but it was just 17 miles away. Now, I'm going backpacking in a few weeks, and I'm going to cross over eight passes of 14,000 feet each, right? And that's if my friend Keith can keep up with me. I'm not sure if he can. But anyway, we're going to do that. And, you know, that's steep climbing, right? And, and uh, you know, so there's lots of rocks. There's lots of hiding places. It's perfect for someone to lay in wait to rob you, right? Not many of us travel these kinds of routes in suburbia. We just don't do it. 
You know, Indonesia's back roads were very dangerous. Any, anywhere outside of the city, it became kind of dangerous when you're traveling. People talk right now of defunding the police, but I have lived in a place where either there were no police out there anywhere, or uh, if they were around, they were truly corrupt, right? And there was a saying in Indonesia, uh, it says, get robbed a chicken and pay for a goat, right? So if you, if you get your chicken taken by somebody and you call the police about it, you end up being extorted so much money just to find your chicken, much more than a chicken's worth. You know, a chicken might be worth, I don't know, I have no idea, 100,000 rupees, where a goat might be worth 2 million rupees. You know, it's just so different. Indonesia had a very clear and very open, actually, it was, it was, it was talked about very openly, a clear corrupt, corrupt policing system in which even the good officers, and I counseled a few, admittedly said they had to participate. They had to bribe their way into the job from the outset. And actually, after they bribed their way into the job, they would actually pay more money to get a certain position to make more money because certain places made more money than others. Then if they didn't extort money on the job from the innocent people that they, you know, stopped or whatever, they would pay, they would have to pay it all out of their own salary and they wouldn't make anything at that point or they would get fired. So whereas our system here has checks and balances, officers we know are typically professional, courteous, and, and, and you know, uh, they have gotten a bad name as a group by a few that have abused their power or acted in racist ways and done some horrific things. And, uh, you know, more than once in Indonesia, we were chased in our car, you know, once by machete-wielding thugs seeking to extort money on their motorcycles you know, in construction zones, local gangs would collect a toll. <laughs> they called it a toll. Uh, and they would beat on your car if you didn't pay. And God forbid, if you got out of your car and you didn't pay, they'd beat on you. The Trans-Sumatran Highway from, north, from south to north Sumatra and back was the only highway up that whole island, right? It's a long, thin, cigar-shaped island. And... Um, it was a dangerous place to drive at night. Criminals would lay palm trees across the road to rob and beat drivers for money uh, when they stopped to get it out of the way or whatever was happening, right? You know, this was the Jericho Road. This is where this guy was. Understand the fear and the risk that this Samaritan took. Compassion puts you at risk and at risk in more ways than one usually, financially, physically, emotionally, and so on and so forth. You know, what if you were walking through, you know, a dark street in Philadelphia one night and you came upon a, a guy all beaten up on the, in an alley? You know, you would automatically think, am I in danger too? Are the guys still around that did this? You, would, you, would you help? Would you break plans, pay out money, or get blood on the seat of your car, you know, to drive him to the hospital? What if the victim was from a different ethnic group that you knew hated you, or at best, uh, you know, I think many people would maybe call the police and walk away. I'm not sure, right? I'm not sure what we'd do. That's something you have to think about yourself. So Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? It's an obvious question. The expert in the law replied rightly. He said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. 
Now let's be aware right here of the religious issues involved surrounding this situation. The law in Numbers 19, 11 through 16 states, a man is ceremonially unclean for seven days if he touches a dead body. So if this guy is half dead, he's, you know, he's just hanging on by a thread or whatever, maybe they thought, oh, he's a goner. Why risk seven days of quarantine and all that, you know? You know, they disregarded the teaching to have mercy on a stranger in need from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, which states, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. In other words, you knew what it's like. You know what it's like to be, you know, on the outside, be uh, the second-class citizen and, and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's what... Israel was called to. The, the priests actually were the public health officials charged with helping the needy. Levites were charged with caring for the poor. And so these men put their schedule or their safety or both against their purpose in life. Listen to that. They, they, they pit their schedule or their safety against their purpose in life. What's something that we could just never do. The very ones responsible to come to a stranger's aid walked by so that they'd not be either ceremonially unclean or, or for personal safety reasons or both. The Samaritan guy faced the same dangers. In context, the wounded man was like, was likely a Jewish guy, an enemy of the Samaritans. This man should have stepped on him, not just over him, right? But he didn't. But compassion led him to step to him or towards him, providing friendship and advocacy and medical treatment and transport and subsidy and even follow-up. I mean, this, this man went out of his way. He went the nth, to the nth degree. He went the extra mile, whatever phrase you want to use. He, he really went above and beyond. See, the expert in the law tried to trap Jesus. But as usual, my boy Jesus turns the table on him, trapping him, pointing out that they are actually the ones who aren't keeping the law, who aren't living it out, right? So this parable's in answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus was asked the very same question by the rich young ruler, if you remember that, and where Jesus challenged him to sell everything and give to the poor, Right? Inviting him into this vibrant, life-giving faith and a community that is bent on justice and mercy, uh, bent on economic help, and and not where everybody's equal in their wealth, but, but when we see need, we help, right? Where everyone's valued and needs are addressed in community, which says that the church should lead in these ways. I did a sermon long time ago, years ago, uh, about finances. I think I actually redid it uh, not too long ago, a couple of years ago or something. But in, in which I added up, like if every person that said that they were a Christian, evangelical Christian alone, if they added up, if we added up that, you know, kind of assuming uh, income, that everybody was actually paying 10% tithe to the church. The church could pay off like the national debt and, and the national debt of a number of countries and still improve their buildings and still raise their salaries and still, and still have money left over to just bless 
you know, you, you know what, out of the poor and the, you know, the lost and the hungry and all that kind of stuff. We, it was just, it was amazing to me. It was amazing to me. We have a lot of potential. We really do. You know, um, other times in the gospel, Jesus talks about the ministry of mercy as if it's the essence of the Christian life, that it's, that it's that approach that, that living out the gospel, which leads people to himself. It lets them know that God loves them. But the phrase good works is some, has sometimes, you know, been suspect in the conservative evangelical realm for fear of trying to earn our salvation, which we know that we can't do. Or good works just are kind of acknowledge that, you know, we got to do them, but yeah, they're kind of like not really talked about too much, right? In our spiritual formation. You know, the church at times has disregarded the call to exhibit God's heart for those in need. And in our current atmosphere, we stated the majority church has often been viewed as complicit or silent in the face of racial injustice due to these attitudes, a clear uh, ministry of justice and mercy. Now, I don't believe that the church has not done anything. They, they often have done a great deal, but, you know, people forget about or they don't even know about what the church has done, right? And, you know, but at times there are, there, there have been Christians or maybe groups of Christians that have not done this well. You know, we get tongue tied in the arguments. We get overwhelmed with the need, don't we? But when chance meets need, we step over the body and say, isn't there a government program? You know, I'm too busy. I can't really make that impact, right? Jesus urges us to godly, heartfelt action in the chances that we stumble upon, moving us to understand that even natural enemies are not beyond our compassion. They are fellow creations of God with intrinsic value themselves, deserving not only the light of the gospel, but the care of it as well. And Jesus unmasked these guys, right? It's not, it's not enough to know your duty in the scriptures, <laughs> right? Many of us have grown up in the church with constant teaching, right? Ad nauseum, we hear this teaching over and over again, and it's good that we do that. But knowledge of scripture is vital. We know that. It's so important to grow in our knowledge of, of the word of God. But, you know, it also has to be lived. It also has to be lived. You know, the Samaritan most likely couldn't quote Isaiah and the other prophets as well as that Levite and that priest could, but he lived the law in compassion. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. And this this guy was doing this kind of stuff, right? And the Jewish leader came from the standpoint of earning his salvation by observance of the law. Now listen to that. In that passage, it says, The law says, do this and live, do this and live, right? Or or in other words, what do I have to do to have everlasting life? My cat is meowing at the door. Anyway, uh, so do this and live, or what do I have to do to gain eternal life? But Jesus satisfies the, the demand of the law upon us, right? So in Christ, the gospel of grace says, live and do this. It flip-flops it, right? Live, you know, live because of Jesus and do this. It's Ephesians chapter 2, right? We have the whole 
the whole outline of how we could, how we are, you know, uh, saved by grace through faith alone in the first part of Ephesians chapter two. And then in verse 10, it says that we were created in, for good works. Once we acknowledge that we we're saved by Christ, right? Due to Jesus, you have the law of God written on your hearts, the spirit of God within you, his heart beating in your chest. So you can respond to situations with kindness, justice, love, and mercy, no matter the risk involved. Do this and live or live and do this. Very different statements. Scripture is to be lived or it becomes an idol in and of itself. We may find ourselves... uh, we are, we may fool ourselves to say that we don't see need on the main line, but we do live on the Jericho Road. We live right on it. Needs surround us, and we're sometimes blind or disengaged to the, to the chances that are before us. If we do involve ourselves, there will be risk as needs come into focus, right? Someone once said, uh, a kingdom-minded Christian holds the Bible in one hand, and the newspaper in the other. And I think that's true. Scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. Give to the needy. Engage the community. Care for people. Seek justice. And we've heard this all over and over again. We, but we must also become acquainted with the needs in our community. We've heard the cry <clears throat> excuse me, of racial injustice lately, quite often, right? Something we do take to heart, and we raise our voice when we hear it and we see it happening, and we act upon it as we can in different scenarios, and we do that with wisdom and discernment. But let me ask you another question. What about abortion? What about abortion? Do you even care, right? What about adoption, right? Have you ever considered that? How do we advocate for children, Right? Foster care is one, one way. My daughter works in that, that, that whole area and Kim and I take in foster kids from the border. Right? It's, it's just what can we do? Right? In Tim Keller's book, Ministries of Mercy, he states that one out of every seven North Americans is poor. Nearly 42% of American children grow up in low-income families, and and almost one child in four, about 23%, grows up in poverty. Now, those stats, I don't know if they're current. It doesn't really matter. They still speak to us, no matter if they've changed by the time he's written that book or not. You know, we can concoct excuses. And we say to ourselves, well, the poor just won't work. Isn't it their fault? Is, isn't it because they do drugs or they drink too much, et cetera, and so on and so forth? Don't we have to expect them to take responsibility for themselves? Mercy and compassion, though, teach us that it's not who deserves, but who needs who gets our attention. It's not who deserves, but who needs that gets our attention. Jews didn't deserve compassion from Samaritans. So ask yourself, who gave you your opportunities? Would you be here without the wealth of your family or the backing of your family? I dropped Tanner off at, at college this week and, you know, and I know his brothers, 
his brother and his sisters and his mother and myself and his grandparents and uh, his his sister-in-law and all these other people, his uncles, his aunts, his, you know, all these people are, they encourage him verbally. They, 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 he has a support system around him that takes you someplace. It really, I mean, it's seriously, it just gives you a leg up because transitioning to college is one of the hardest things we do in life, right? You know, you may be in need someday too, right? Many of our conceptions are misguided. Life's just more complicated than we would like to admit, isn't it? Take this woman's example. And I, I have actually actually a friend. This is from Tim Keller's book, but I have a friend with this very similar example. Uh, this woman, Kathy, was a middle, middle-class homemaker, but her son was killed in an accident one year, which led her dr- husband to, to drink too much, and they eventually divorced and he left her alone at 43 with no skills, no job history, or, or, or any alimony due to, due to a state law where he could get out of it. And her husband then recovered, and he remarried, and he began a job at $65,000 a year while she worked as a waitress for only $900 a month. And she was unable to both pay her rent and eat. And she began drinking, and she sought psychiatric help, and they only prescribed tranquilizers, so it all got worse. And she began living in welfare hotels and is now in a rehabilitation center for indigent women. You know, ask yourself, was she just irresponsible, or did life just roll over her? I think it's the latter, right? You never know what 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 somebody's been through. You look on them at them on the outside, and you make judgment calls, but you may not even know their story, right? One out of five homeless actually hold down a job, he says, but it's, it's just not enough to, to get a home. And for others, you can't get a job without an address or an address without a job, <laughs> right? It's a catch-22. We can read all the statistics, but it would only overwhelm you and numb you further, Right? That's not to say that we shouldn't learn about these things, right? But wherever chance meets need, we act. Wherever chance meets need, we act. Intentionally loving in the spirit of Jesus as individuals and church, right? You know, I all the time in Philly or New York, if I'm there, or in Indonesia when we were there, you know, we would come across beggars in the street and, you know, I know a lot of people walk by and they're like, well, they'll just spend it on alcohol. Well, how do I know that? Dude, I got a lot. Dig down. Give it. Give it. Give it. Who cares? God's going to bless you if you're a giver. He really is. It's the only place in Scripture, by the way, TJ reminded me of this last week, where he says, test me in this. Give and test me in this. Amen to that. Anyway, I digress. But... Where do we have common ground with people in our community? What road do we walk together bringing chances in ministry, right? Think of it as overlapping circles. I made a little graphic. I didn't want to take the time to do this on my computer and share my screen because I'm afraid I'm screw things up and lose you guys. But um, think of it as overlapping circles. So you have the needs and the dreams of your city. I hope you can see that. Needs and dreams of your city. And then you have the... Um, the mandates and desires of God and the calling and capacity of the local church. And right there in the middle where all those overlap is service, here's control, here's common grace, and here's salvation, right? Just so you have a little 
little visual. But anyway, we how do we know? You know what 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 these things are? We ask and we listen for the needs and dreams of our community, don't we? Desires of uh, of, of peace and of prosperity and of opportunity and justice and mercy and the like are all usually shared by people, right? People don't typically want, you know, um, uh, more crime or poverty or pain or, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. That the, this, this good stuff is our common ground. You remember Jesus um, uh, shared, uh, he, he, he wept over Jerusalem, Right? He wept over Jerusalem. He just sat there and wept over a whole city. You know, God speaks of building cities that are glorifying to him in Psalm 127 and Jeremiah 33. And actually in Isaiah 65, he outlines what a healthy community looks like. And it's made up of public celebrations and happiness, public health for children and the aged, housing for all, food for all, family support systems, absence of violence and meaningful work, right? All those things are a part of what a healthy community looks like. And the church should be involved in building these things. We know the mandates and the the desires of God, that other circle, health, life, justice, vitality for communities, the peace and the salvation that, that the gospel brings as we preach it. We're called to do that. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission. We know the local church's calling and capacity, right? A mandate to build community through living and sharing the gospel. And we know that servants are often invited in where people of power aren't. And people are drawn to what makes us different as we serve. You know, Aristides, a Christian apologist in the first century uh, in Athens, described Christians to the Roman emperor Hadrian this way. He said, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something to give, if they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. Amen to that. You know, we're not a giant, large, wealthy church with a lot of flash. We're just not. We are blessed, though. We have hands, feet, and voices, and resources to serve others well. And this is where our tithing does become vital. It's not just to pay our rent. It's not just to pay my salary or Jordan or Kathleen's salary or anybody's salary. It, it you know, are we giving at the, at at least the 10% level so that the church has a surplus, surplus to physically help with chances with these chances where we see need in our community, where where we get to that intersection of life with people, you know? Control often stands in the way. Control by the state over the church or the church over the state is always detrimental, right? Control is not what we're about as Christians. It, that, that only has to do with coercion. Our goals, heartfelt, selfless service, seeing people know Christ, willingly giving uh, their lives to him. We know what we uniquely bring to the table, don't we? The light of salvation in the darkness of society. That's what we bring. You are the bearers of the message of life, right? You are, you are the light of the world, Jesus calls you, right? Community leaders don't usually say that they want salvation for their community. That's not necessarily the common ground, but it is needed by them. It is. 
It's our hope, and we can be open and honest and bold about that. We are Christians. We are unapologetic of the gospel. God bless them. We want them to know Jesus. But we also bring skills and emotional care and words of encouragement and the power of prayer. People that have never been prayed over, man, when they do get prayed over, it is a moving, moving experience. We have more to offer than we think, right? Service, therefore, is our sweet spot where everything conjoins, leading to opportunities of salvation. It's been said, uh, you know, Jesus is the only way to God, but there are a thousand ways to Jesus, right? So we create a thousand ways of service leading to knowing Jesus in our community as we say yes to the chances that are before us. Service isn't only a bridge to salvation, but also a bridge to service. It goes the other way. New believers do really well to live out their faith, not waiting to be perfected in Christ and all that kind of stuff. You know, at Passover, Jesus showed the full extent of his love, the scriptures tell us. How? You give give him a big, long sermon like this one? (laughs) Or, Or a bunch of money? No. He washed their feet. He just washed their feet. They knew his love because he served them in such a really down-to-earth, practical way. One pastor said there's something mystical about servanthood because God's a servant. When we serve others, we more fully reflect the image of God, and our hearts begin to resonate with the heart of God. We may never be more like God than when we are serving from a purely selfless motivation, right? Servanthood isn't really that difficult. Vicki Baird of uh, Vineyard Cincinnati said this. She said, the poor need relationship more than they need money. There's much out there for free, right? Government programs, all that kind of stuff. What they really need is just a person who cares about them. Now, did you notice the story that Jesus tells is a parable? It's fictional, Is that because such people were so hard to find that real life (coughs) examples weren't, you know, plentiful around him? Maybe so. But it is what he calls us to, and it is what he empowers us to be. I'm almost done. (laughs) You know, it takes risk in many ways to serve in selfless ways, but it is rewarding. It really is. We've done a lot uh, as a church over the years, and we will continue to do so. Right now, COVID-19 has diminished the chance encounters, right, as we've all been quarantined and separated out. But God is doing something, even through this time. And I'm really encouraged by that as I sit with leadership to pray with them. Leadership has been so prayerful, seeking what God has before us in the next decade. And one member, or actually a couple members right now, are actually looking uh, for these chance opportunities for us and where we're going to go in coming years. You know, on April 14th, 1912, the Titanic sunk. You remember that, right? 20 lifeboats deployed with a lot of room still left, left in them at that time. And, you know, people were scared to go back for fear of being overturned. They wouldn't go back for the people floating in the water. One person, though, took action. His name was Officer Harold Lowe, and he transferred all the people from his boat to another boat, to all the other boats, and made, like, his boat empty, and he went back through hundreds of floating frozen bodies. 
And he couldn't save them all, obviously, but he saved a few by one selfless act of service. Now, isn't that not a visual image of our community out there, right? We float through life with the lantern of Christ held high. We are the light of Christ in a dark world, dark and cold world, looking for someone, just raising their hand, begging for care, and with the opportunity to find salvation through that. So, Be prayerful as we seek God's will for our church and its witness in this tumultuous time. Ask the Holy Spirit, how do we become servants of Christ's heart, being salt, light, and living water to those around us, no matter who they are? How do we check our hearts and our attitudes towards others and our assumptions about others and correct them and not become uh, judges of people's heart, but actually servants of their lives? God bless you guys. I can't wait to see you on the 13th. Uh, pray for me. Kim and I are going to Santa Fe this week. Amen. Getting away with the wife. I can't wait. And uh, I will be back. My, But I tell you, so September 6th, Dawn Woods is going to preach. I've already listened to her sermon, uh, especially the first two minutes or so. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. You'll see why I say that later. But anyway, um, that was a joke, by the way. But her, her, her message is phenomenal. And then... Uh, the following Sunday, my own brother, my big brother, my oldest brother is going to preach to you guys. And I'm going to go and check out another church just to get familiar with how other people are doing right now and what's going on. So God bless you guys. I'm not abandoning you. I'm just doing some things that I need to do. And then I will be back September 13th uh, to talk to you. If you ever want to read a couple of good books uh, on this whole, these whole issues. Good news, good works by Ron Sider. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by Ron Sider is good. Ministries of Mercy, which I've, uh, used in this sermon. Tim Keller. The Externally Focused Church by Russell and Swanson. They're good books. And there's plenty of others out there. I just, those are some that, uh, I've read in my past and, and whatnot. So God bless you guys. And I will see you here. If you want to come at 1130, bring your lunch. Uh, 214 Lippincott Avenue in Ardmore. And uh, hope, I hope to see you. Amen.